A highly anticipated pill for people with severe peanut allergies has turned out to be a dud. Few patients have been willing to shell out for the expensive drug, which has to be taken for over a year to work and comes with strict rules around what time of day it can be taken, what kind of food it can be taken with, and at what temperature it has to be stored. This is Pulse Check. I'm Alice Miranda Olstein. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention added COVID-19 vaccinations for children, adolescents, and adults to its immunization schedule. Though the agency already recommended the shots, this formalizes that guidance for healthcare providers and schools, but it does not mandate vaccines. States and localities determine which vaccines schools will require for students, and all 50 states have medical exemptions for vaccines. On Thursday, the Senate Judiciary Committee advanced five bipartisan bills that aim to boost generic and biosimilar competition in the pharmaceutical space. The bipartisan support signals the ongoing popularity of efforts to control the cost of prescription drugs. A Democratic Senate Judiciary Committee aide told Politico that the bills have a good chance of moving through the full Senate, but it's not clear whether the legislation will move in the House, where Republicans have a narrow majority. And... Reporter Josh Gerstein's story on a federal judge's recent suggestion that a constitutional right to abortion could be conferred by the 13th Amendment set off a wave of excitement among abortion rights activists. So we sat down to separate the hype from the plausible. Hey, good to be with you. So you reported this week that a federal judge in D.C. is now suggesting there could be a new path to restoring federal protections for abortion. What exactly did she say? Well, uh, Alice, it's kind of a weird way for, I think, an abortion case to come up, but it's actually a case involving a batch of, I think, about 10 anti-abortion activists who are charged with obstructing clinic entrances and intimidating patients and so forth. Some of them are fairly well-known activists from the D.C. area. And one of the issues that came up here was in the wake of the Dobbs decision last June, there were arguments from the defense that the federal government really doesn't have any business anymore trying to regulate access to abortion clinics because it's not a federally protected right, at least not constitutionally protected. And so we had this judge, her name is Colleen Kalar Catelli. She's a a Clinton appointee. She's been on the bench for quite a while, two or three decades. Come forward and say, well, you know, the Dobbs decision really is focused on one main justification for abortion under the Constitution through equal protection, through the 14th Amendment, and didn't discuss or consider really some other arguments that have been put forward in recent years for how abortion could be protected. And one of them is a question of the 13th Amendment. And I don't know, it's not one that comes up all that often these days, but that one prohibits both slavery and involuntary servitude. It was passed to basically bring an end or at the end of the Civil War. And so there have been a small number of smattering of academics and lawyers arguing for some time that, you know, that might be another reason to consider abortion protected under the Constitution if you could consider it to be slavery or involuntary servitude. Now, we should say the judge didn't say that she believes that. She just said she wants to hear arguments on it and so or or at least receive written arguments on it. And so she set some deadlines for the lawyers in the case to bring those arguments forward. So kind of an off-kilter, unusual way 
for a debate over abortion rights to come up, but it looks like that's how it's going to play out in this particular case. So there was, yeah, a lot of, a lot of excitement in the abortion rights community um, after your report, but is this actually likely to lead to some sort of lifting of abortion restrictions? Do you think that kind of argument would go anywhere with our current Supreme Court? No. I mean, the short answer to your question, Alice, is no. I don't think it would go very far with the current Supreme Court. And in fact, I think if you're talking about sort of novel or alternative ways to come up with a constitutional right to abortion or some kind of broader national protection for abortion short of new legislation being passed, there's probably, in my view, more traction in cases that are going on around religious freedom rights and First Amendment protections for religious practice than around this 13th Amendment argument. I don't want to say it's a fringe argument, but it's a more kind of marginal argument that that you don't see put forward by a lot of people. And another thing worth mentioning, I think, is that you know, over the years, there have been a lot of other arguments for abortion rights beyond the ones in Roe versus Wade. Folks may have heard that one of the biggest protectors and supporters of abortion rights on the Supreme Court, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, actually was not really a fan of the way Roe versus Wade came to its conclusions. And she had long said she thought abortion rights could be defended better on gender equality grounds than on the grounds that the 14th Amendment was used in Roe versus Wade, which was more of a privacy-related argument that I, I think a lot of scholars of different political persuasions have said um, was not the strongest uh, argument ever put forward by the Supreme Court. So as you mentioned, some groups have found some success arguing that the First Amendment protects abortion rights, you know, saying that state bans on abortion infringe on the religious rights of people whose religions actually support abortion access. You know, that's cropped up in lawsuits in at least four states that I know of so far. So, yeah, do you see this having any legs? Uh, I definitely think some case like that is going to make its way to the Supreme Court and probably will be heard eventually. It's not entirely clear because of the fact you need four justices to take a case. And right now we have only three liberal, Democratic-appointed justices, so you would need at least a, a fourth one. Um, there are also some practical and legal reasons why those arguments are a little tricky. It kind of gets down into the, the weeds a little bit, but the Supreme Court itself has never actually said that the Constitution allows people to sort of exempt themselves from broadly uh, applicable laws like an abortion ban because of their religious beliefs. Other people have said that, um, and that includes Congress has said that in this uh, legislation called the L Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The reason it was a restoration act is because the Supreme Court ruled to the contrary and Congress stepped in by an overwhelming margin, uh, again, back during the, the Clinton years and passed legislation that sort of gave a supremacy to religious rights and said that in most situations, uh, those religious rights would prevail unless the government had some kind of extraordinary interest. How that applies in specific cases continues to be a very contentious issue. Uh, RIFRA, the federal law, by its terms or the way it's been interpreted, doesn't apply to states or local governments. So that's a little bit of a problem. That said, one of the ironies here, Alice, is that the state's 
that are most eager to pass bans on abortion or to try to enforce abortion restrictions, many of them have very robust religious freedom laws, places like Florida and and Indiana and so forth, and then many states across the South. So, you know, that may be a better avenue for abortion rights advocates trying to pursue those challenges through not to the U.S. Supreme Court, but to their state Supreme Courts to see what those states say about, you know, whether religious freedom protections in their state constitution or in their state law means that some of these abortion bans wouldn't be applicable in certain situations. I think you could take a case like that to the U.S. Supreme Court. I do think we will see one eventually, but maybe not before it's it's hashed out at the state level. Yeah, I mean, the the best example is a court ruled that Indiana's religious freedom law that Mike Pence, um, famously very anti-abortion, that law protects the right to abortion and it contributed to courts blocking Indiana's abortion restrictions, uh, which which remain blocked for now. Um, So this is definitely playing out. I guess finally, just sort of like big picture, do you see both sides of the abortion fight right now sort of just throwing out (laughs) different theories and challenges and seeing what sticks in courts? Yeah, I mean, I I think that's an element of what's going on. And, And the Supreme Court has a history and the courts have a history of sort of transforming arguments that some may have thought uh, were marginal or fringe into mainstream arguments. Um, uh, I think back to some of the Obamacare cases that many experts said uh, when they were filed, the challenges uh, uh, to the individual mandate in Obamacare, you would have been hard pressed to find a single uh, expert, a sort of middle of the road expert saying that this had the slightest chance of prevailing at the Supreme Court and, you know, the individual mandate survived by dint of a hair's breadth of John Roberts coming up with sort of an obscure justification for his opinion in the case. So it was a very, very close call. And I think, you know, that's just an example of some of these theories, you know, they weren't that important before Dobbs, you know, coming up with an alternate theory to support abortion rights under the Constitution was an interesting academic experiment before June of last year. After June of last year, it's become a much more urgent legal issue on both sides. And so I'm not at all surprised that that you're seeing both sides roll out some arguments that courts were pretty dismissive of if they ever even considered during the 49 or so years that Roe versus Wade was the law of the land. Thanks so much for helping us track all of this. I hope to have you back on soon. Okay, Alice, happy to do it. And that's our show. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Annie Reese is our producer. Brooke Hayes is our editor. Our healthcare team editors are Eli Reyes, Dan Goldberg, Barbara Van Tyne, Beth Belton, and Sean Zeller. Jenny Ament is the executive producer of Audio at Politico. I'm Alice Miranda Olstein. Subscribe and follow Pulse Check for a new episode every day. And subscribe to our newsletters where you can read this reporting. Pulse, Future Pulse, and Prescription Pulse. Thanks for listening.